Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording a UFO action. And there in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls, something crawling towards you. Why? Oh my god! Are you seeing this? To a formation forming. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. On tonight's show, we have Daniel Stockton. We're going to be talking with him about the fluoride cover-up. That and much more on Thresholds Radio. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out ufo-info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on theedgeonair.com. Welcome back. Back with us today talking about the real dangers of water fluoridation is my good friend Daniel Stockton from the Lilly Center for Scientific Research and Development. How are you doing today, Daniel? Hey, I'm just doing well. Great to be here again and uh, looking forward to our discussion. Why don't you uh, tell everybody who you are and what the organization is for people that have might have missed you on the last show, which I believe was in January. Yes, um, I'm a public health uh, professional. My background, I'm one of those guys that used to put the white suit on and dive into spills of radioactive materials and biologic agents. Um, I'm the former manager of the EPA Western Regional Lead Training Center. And um, I've been involved in um, toxics assessment, hazmat, those kind of things. Um, and over the past eight years, maybe a little bit more than that, I've been working almost full-time up until relatively recently to um, on this issue of harm from water fluoridation. So this is something that, uh, for me, as a person who's been involved with assessing hazards, uh, it's... When I got pulled into it, I really didn't know what I was getting into because I'm not a politician. I'm kind of one of these nerdy scientist guys. Um, but I quickly found out that the issue about harm from fluorides and water fluoridation really didn't have anything to do with science. We already have plenty of science that would have caused the whole practice to end. This is the reason that it continues today. It really is not about science. It's about uh, people who got invested in this and what it will mean when it collapses and what the financial and legal liabilities are. Well, the word's really getting out about this. Like, since we had you on last time, I was telling you off air, we got quite a bit of response from that. And uh, I can see the Google hits, too, people searching your name and searching water fluoridation. So the word is definitely getting out there. Yes, it is. And, and fascinating thing to me, um, we uh, began to talk about the whole issue of fluoride gate, the, fluoride, the, the scandal, the fluoride gate scandal relating to this issue um, a, a few years back, and now it's starting to accelerate, accelerate as more and more Freedom of Information Act uh, information is coming out, and and people are finding out that the there's some really kind of disturbing aspects to this issue of fluoride. This this for me, you know, I've worked with a lot of dangerous things in my career, and you know, when you can protect yourself, you know, I could have never done my job if I didn't if I was really worried about working with chemicals, and I always just knew how to protect myself. The disturbing aspect about this for me is you can't protect yourself when you're working with fluorides in water and then also it's into the foods that are processed or made with the fluoridated water. So there's this effect, this kind of spillover effect, and of course people get fluoride from a whole bunch of other sources. So to me, this this violates the real fundamental principles of 
of toxicology and things like this where we, we can't control dose, things, very fundamental things like that. And so a, a lot of people, you know, when they hear the word fluoride, they mix it up with the word chlorine. They don't really kind of understand, and I understand why. I mean, these, these chemical names, a lot of people's eyes would roll back in their heads when they hear these heavy-duty chemical-sounding names. But to forget all of that and just sort of distill it for what the average person who's not a scientist, and, and you really don't have to be a scientist to understand. There, there's real common sense issues about this that make no sense to me um, on a common sense basis, but then also on a um, health basis and a toxicology basis. And so as we began to look into this whole issue a few years back, I, I began to find this kind of strange reaction in people. And we found out that professionals, I'm talking about doctors, dentists, researchers, scientists, and of course, even, logically also the political leaders, a lot of people have never really looked at this issue. And I'm talking about the, the doctors. And I found them making really fundamental errors in their assumptions and we traced it back to the fact that there was basically a few talking points about fluoride and water fluoridation uh, that had been basically disseminated throughout the public health infrastructure. So um, just to, I guess maybe I always like to share this at the beginning, is that we put fluoride in water to help prevent cavities. That's really why we add these fluoride chemicals. It's the only chemical that we add to drinking water at water treatment plants that treats a condition in people's bodies. All the other stuff that they add to the water at treatment plants, it treats the water itself. Right. You know, for instance, for instance, we add chlorine to kill germs in the water. We add aluminum compounds to take dirt out of the water. But this, uh, these compounds, these fluoride chemicals, we're adding to actually create physiological effect in the human body. So we're being medicated in the, in the drinking water. And I have you know some real heartburn with that aspect. And that other thing you're talking about was something last time I talked to you, I didn't know until you had mentioned it, is that this is in everything. This is in bread. This is in products we buy because of the water they make it with, which for some reason, you know, I never even realized that until you said it. So that's really scary because you're getting it not only from water, but you're getting it from your food. You're getting it from everywhere. Yes, we are. And, and it's something that I call multiple source overdosing. And that's one of the fundamental tenets of, of pharmacology and toxicology is that you want, you, you know, customized dose. When, when you go to the doctor and, and he gives you a pill, it has to do with your body weight and your other sources of, of exposures. You know, these things have to be factored into how much of this active agent that you're ingesting. But it's, to me, um, I get a lot of people actually, we do this, when I get presentations, people call up and they ask if we'll do a presentation here or there. And, and one thing I do is a little show and tell, and I, I have gone to grocery stores and I bring an assortment of various kinds of foods and beverages and other products that people will be ingesting, and I display it, and the media is really fascinated with that also because it's something they can zoom in on and, and very sort of um, graspable. When you look at uh, a thing like a can of corn or raisin bran or bread um, or, or beans, baked, uh, or, um, you know, like uh, refried beans, things like this that you buy in packages and cans and things like this, jams that you know, may have a fluoride pesticide residue in the grapes, things like this. And, and so there's been a, this is one of the reasons why in 2011, the Centers for Disease Control and the Health and Human Services folks, they recommended slightly dropping the amount of fluoride in fluoridated water to 0.7 parts per million instead of a range of 0.7 to 1.2 parts per million. That sounds all kind of techy, and the right. bottom line is that 
They dropped it basically a little bit. And that the thing that was fascinating about it is they did this after protesting for decades that there was absolutely positively no science whatsoever that would justify lowering fluoride in water. So when they did do it, they said as their justification the thing that you just mentioned, which was um, that, well, there's a lot of sources of fluoride now, so um, this is why we're doing a fine-tuning, they said. Um, but, you know, to me, uh, that to me is very disingenuous, because even if you lower it a little bit, which they have recommended lowering it a little bit, you still can't control the dose that people ingest. Exactly. Somebody might like a particular bread or a particular product that has a lot in it and eat a lot of it, and they have no way of knowing how much you have. No, there's, and it's not on labels of food. It's not required to be labeled, things like this. And so um, people are kind of stunned by that aspect of it. And, and in a very practical sense, for people who are the most vulnerable populations, for instance, if you're a kidney patient uh, or a diabetic, um, these are really critical things to know about, or if you have a little baby. Um, and, and on the other end of the scale, if you happen to be a senior citizen and you have joint pain or stiffness, this is something, you know, to be aware of, that fluorides are accumulating in your bones and joints. Uh, also, to me, this is very greatly disturbing that fluorides, because they deposit in your bones, that's where your, your immune cells, uh, many of your immune cells are generated in your bones. And I have found virtually no knowledge about this issue in the populations of people who are immunocompromised. Um, it could be someone who has a uh, kidney transplant, uh, you know, and they're having to take uh, drugs, you know, to make sure they're, they don't get rejected and uh, their kidney doesn't get rejected. And there are people with all kinds of uh, immunosuppressive uh, uh, diseases. And to me, I think that, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be. I'm a public health person. But, I mean, I, I think that um, people at least should be given the information about this so that they would have a choice if they are immunocompromised. Uh, to be able to avoid it if they wanted to. Right. It's actually kind of easy to cut down a little bit. Like since we talked to you, I was telling you before off air, I, I got that new toothpaste now that has no uh, fluoride in it, and it's not hard to find. You, my gosh, you can go to the local Walmart and get it. So little things like that can certainly help too. Yes, absolutely. There's there's definitely ways now. I, I get that question a lot, actually. People, until fluoridation collapses, and we can talk about that as we're, uh, that's really kind of encouraging as we're moving towards the collapse. But until it collapses, there are certain things that are kind of, from my my opinion, would be to sort of um, prudent to do to limit your exposure to fluorides. And, um, and you know, it, it's important on several levels. There's the fluorides themselves. But remember also that fluorides can potentiate harm from other exposures. So it's not just the fact that fluorides um, can be harmful in and of themselves, but if you're also exposed to lead or other aluminum sources and things like this, this is something to educate oneself about. And, and you know, then people, the next question is, is well, how do I not get it in my food and how do I not get it in my water? And, you know, that's something we can talk about if you'd like to. Yeah, actually, why don't you go into that now? Because, uh, like you said, I, I've talked to you. I've tried to cut it down. I actually even make my own bread now, believe it or not, trying to stay healthy. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, um, yeah, there's, I think that there's a, a kind of a wide spectrum as, as to how you can do this. I have some people, for instance, um, you, you'll find this, I don't know if I had mentioned this before, but some people that want to get a filtration system to filter it out of their house's water. And so you've got the issue of, do I put it on my sink to deal with what I drink, but what about the whole house, like when I'm showering? And what do I deal with the whole house 
uh, effect of the fluoride being there. And um, kind of a disturbing aspect of this is that one of the more effective ways that the systems are out there, if you want to filter the fluoride out of your whole house water, they've got these systems that use bone char. They basically take cow bones or other animal bones, and they you run the uh, fluoride past it, and interestingly enough, the fluoride will be pulled out of the water by the bones. And, of course, the logical thing that follows from that is, wait a minute, if they use animal bones to take fluoride out of water, doesn't that mean my bones are going to absorb it? Exactly. Well, That's yeah. kind of a chilling it's, thought. <laughs> it's very kind of a, it's almost, some people tell me it's kind of creepy to think of running their, their drinking water past cow bones and things like this. But the fact of the matter is, is that it is pretty effective. There's other methods, you know, like uh, dist- distillation systems, which take basically everything but hydrogen and oxygen out of the water. Well, there's a few things they let go in there also. But the, you know, there's there's the whole idea of filtration of the fluoride and, and and the thing that some people, the first thing to remember is a lot of people have those carbon or charcoal filters right. on their house and, or on their refrigerator, let's say, or on those, you know, those ones that sit on your sink, your countertop, and you pour your water through it, right? Um, like a pitcher. Those, a lot of those, um, the ones I've come across, those are charcoal or carbon-based systems, and that doesn't touch the fluoride, Adam. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, it doesn't touch the fluoride. Ion. And so your... The fluoride compounds, because it's a real soup inside your um, water, you've got fluoride bound with this, fluoride bound with that, and, and it's just kind of an interesting sort of chemistry inside the um, in the water. But as, as you're trying to take the fluoride out, um, you can use uh, some reverse osmosis systems, for instance, but some of them take as little as half of the fluoride out, or maybe even 45% of it. Some of them will take like 96% of it out. Um, and then you've got um, other other ways. Where, you know, these charcoal ones, of course, don't touch fluoride. It's a very hard animal to grab a hold of, if you will. And so um, there's a series of things that if you can afford it, uh, and we don't endorse any one particular system or anything like that. We're just a nonprofit organization, and, and we don't take sides and things like that. But there are toothpaste. There are water filtration systems that can help lower your fluoride uh, dose that you're getting. And of course, then there's your food. Um, and I just encourage people to, to eat as much uh, non-processed food as they can, uh, bearing in mind that some produce has a pesticide, pesticide residue on it. Um, you know, even even some of the, uh, there's, well, there's a whole series of sort of uh, fumigants that there's a fumigant that the EPA has said that they want to phase out it's a fluoride one that actually has pretty high levels on certain foods, um, but the industry, of course, for certain grains and other things like this, they're using this fumigant, and they're not real happy about discontinuing it because they started using the fluoride one in place of some other bad actors, if you will. So the, the best thing that I would say is is to use um, fluoride in a um, to the degree that you can to, to use fluoride-free uh, foods from not having processed water used in the manufacture of those foods. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's, you know, you can get, you like, you make your own bread, but there's other kinds of foods that, um, like, you know, what are you going to do if you happen to like raisin bran? It's kind of tough to make your own raisin bran where you get the fluoride on the raisins as a residue on the raisins, um, and then you also get it in the water that manufactures the bran flakes. 
That's true. So, it's not just uh, fluoride, too. Just in general, for health purposes, you should eat organic and you should do more things yourself just because of all the other crap that's in there, too. Well, I mean, it's a very um, sobering thing for me because of the the way when fluorides get in your body, there's certain, the way I sort of say it, it's kind of like the big gorilla on the block. Um, fluorides kind of throw their weight around. It's the way they're electrochemically set up and and. So when they get in our body, um, this is why I'm concerned on a lot of levels, because there's so many susceptible subgroups who are even more, I guess, if you will, susceptible than other um, groups of the population. So, um, you know, this to, I have said for some time that what we need to do is educate folks so that the next time you hear the word fluoride, your reaction to it will be the same reaction you have when someone says the word arsenic. You know how you recoil when you hear the word arsenic? Right. Well... The idea here is, is that for, for one-time kind of sudden exposures, not long-term chronic ones, um, the toxicity of fluorides are just a whisker less toxic than arsenic and a little bit more toxic than lead. So just to put that in perspective, it sits right in between those two. So, you know, if we think that fluoride is some innocuous kind of thing, the way that it's painted by the pro-fluoride and fluoridation folks, that's just not true. Well, some people, too, are, are, their eyes are open and they realize it. And then there's other people, like I was telling you last night on the phone, on our Facebook page, somebody had mentioned that. And people like, yes, I've heard that's bad, and I recommended they listen to you. And then some other people post like, oh, that's fine. I've been having it my whole life. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. And they're just dead set and won't even listen. No, there's, I think um, there, there's an issue for me that I found. I didn't know this when I got into it. Um, my my father happened. He was, he was a psychologist, and I grew up learning a lot about the psychology of how people, how we defend what our beliefs are, and, and what makes people open minded and, and closed minded, et cetera. It just really made me do a lot of thinking along those lines, and I find that this issue is terrifying on a conscious or usually subconscious level for most people. Because if, if it's true, and it is, that something this harmful has been missed for this long by the very people that we trust for our health, to watch over our health, then this is, this is very difficult for people's worldview to assimilate. So uh, that's, to me, um, I, I see that people who so strenuously, particularly those in the dental field, you know, if your whole career you've been pushing fluoride, the first thing, either subconsciously or consciously, you think is, what's my liability if I've been pushing this stuff? Yeah, that's um, true. Even doc- doctors, of course, are that way. But but beyond that, there's a lot of folks who really want to trust their doctor. And the thing that most people don't know is that um, doctors haven't looked at fluoride. I haven't found very few that have read the most recent scientific literature. Um, and just they think that fluoride has been scientifically uh, studied exhaustively. And mm. even the Centers for Disease Control has pushed that. So... Um, we found out, of course, in, from the National Research Council that that exact opposite is true. Really basic, fundamental research on whole body outside the, outside the mouth effects has never been studied. Well, aren't there? Very, there's quite a disturbing. so there's quite a few uh, countries that have outlawed this already too. That they are not even allowed to use it, aren't there? Well, I want to be accurate about how we state that. Um, there's a lot to sort of learn about this whole topic. But it is true that um, there's plenty of countries that don't fluoridate their water. The other side, the pro-fluoridation folks, they like to say, well, a lot of those European countries, um, they don't fluoridate, but they put fluoride in their salt. 
kind of like, you know, how we add iodine to our salt. Yes. And they act as if that's a form of fluoridation through salt and, and other things that would make up for it. But what they don't bother telling you is that certain a number of countries that have no salt fluoridation or water fluoridation have tooth decay rates as good or better than us. So there are plenty of uh, countries and cities, um, you know, major ones now, you keep hearing more with more frequency, are, are getting away from fluoridation. And, and frankly, I think as a rate payer, um, any of your listeners who are, are, are rate payers for their water that they get delivered to their home, you know, this is something that is going to affect people's water rates when the legal actions begin in earnest. Now, they have begun, but um, just to th- think of it as a risk management and a financial and legal risk management concept, from a water utility standpoint, everything that they do to support fluoridation is, should be weighed, the benefit of it, which is really very limited in terms of cavity prevention, needs to be weighed against all the other negatives. And it's kind of strange how the other side basically acts like there's really no downside, as if this is the only chemical on the planet that you can drink as much as you of it, ingest as much as you want, and there's no downside to it. Mm-hmm. Um, makes absolutely no sense. This is absorbed through the skin. Too. I mean, like if you take a shower in it, it's, it's absorbed through your whole body. It doesn't just have to be in your mouth, right? Yes, and that's kind of a sobering thing also. Um, there's been virtually no science on that um, to really look into it. But, yes, it is absorbed uh, dermally. And um, so, you know, that's why people sometimes are, are concerned about getting whole body, uh, I'm sorry, whole house um, filtration systems because right. of the showering angle. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I drink water from a 500-foot well, and, you know, I I'm, feel very fortunate in that respect. Um, but... Um, you know, there's there's a lot of people that still have this coming into their showers. And, uh, you know, for me, um, if you look at all the different sources where it comes from, from your toothpaste, your foods, your water, your other beverages, um, other oral health products and, and various things like this, um, the fact that you have apps, you can ask, you, you could go to your doctor today and say, how much fluoride did I ingest last month? They would have absolutely no idea. You would say, how much is in my bones right now? to where how far along am I right now towards getting skeletal fluorosis, uh, uh, you know, very painful and uh, deforming. And uh, the science behind doing that is just we don't, we don't, we're not there. Uh, you can't do a bone biopsy, very, very painful. And uh, so what we've done is we've looked at some uh, cadavers and things like that. But um, the fact is that everyone listening to this right now, um, if you think about your bones and joints, you have fluoride that have accumulated over your lifetime in your bones and joints. The only question is, how far along are you to the point where you may, at some point, start getting the early painful stages of skeletal fluorosis? And um, that, of course, the other side likes to say, oh, there's never really been found skeletal fluorosis. But, uh, of course, they forget to tell you that we don't look for it. (laughs) That's kind of troubling. Yes, I mean, it's, it's the symptoms mimic those of uh, rheumatoid and osteoarthritis. And so, you, they, you know, the fact is, is you have thousands of parts per million of fluoride in your bones right now. What is that doing to your um, immune cells that are being generated in your bones? Um, how, you know, could it be that if you have joint pain or stiffness as a senior citizen that maybe some of it was caused by this? And if, if, you're, if, you're call, if you are a kidney patient, if you're really in a tight spot because... It's this vicious cycle. Kidney patients, their kidneys 
uh, a lot of them are compromised to where they can't excrete fluoride when that's the place where your body really tries to get rid of them. We concentrate fluoride there in the kidneys as your body desperately tries to expel them. So you get this 50-fold increase um, that's occurring there down in the kidneys. And, and so if your kidney function doesn't, uh, isn't, isn't there to the degree that you, it should be, is if you're impaired somehow or you maybe have a kidney transplant or you're missing a kidney or something like that, um, then what's happening is uh, your body's able to get rid of less of it, so more of it deposits in your bones. And certain kidney patients have this thing called osteomalacia, which is a very painful bone syndrome. And so all these fluorides are accumulating in their bones, even more so. So as you age, if your kidney function drops, and, and I think it's something like one in nine American adults have some form of kidney disease now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is just very, very uh, concerning to me. And all of this has to be weighed against a very minimal amount of cavity reduction from fluorides. Well, and there's no actual way to tell... Uh how much is in your system. If somebody went in and wanted to know how much fluoride they've ingested or is in their bones, you really can't tell then, huh? No, the science, there's there's a couple phases that we're going to be entering in. They'll, they'll overlap a little bit, but I see this thing shaking down in three phases. First is the collapse of fluoridation. Secondly, there's going to be a whole bunch of research and grant money and things like this on how to analyze the body burden of fluorides that are already deposited in people's bodies, for instance, up in your pineal gland, in your, in your brain, uh, where it accumulates, or in your bones. Uh, how do we know who's got it bad and what level? And then beyond that will be the research that has to be done to how do you pull it out of the body once it's there without harming the other structures, other systems and organs. So, you know, we haven't even finished the first stage, which is collapsing fluoridation, but there's going to be quite a bit of money, um, I, I see, spent on this as it unfolds. That's true, and they're actually, I never thought about that. There's no way to actually take this out of your system right now, is there? If you have it in there, I mean, we don't have any way to, like, pull fluoride out of a person, do we? Well, there's there's some thinking that now, I mean, and this sort of makes intuitive sense, but if you eat a diet rich in bioavailable calcium, like in dark green leafy, leafy vegetables, yes, um, that it would help pull some of it out, um, but, you know, there's we it's been this sort of sacred cow you know um, this idea that fluorides are good and safe and mom's apple pie and all American you know that kind of thing and so up until recently there really wasn't even research done in the United States except on oral effects of fluorides so now that we've had some other things come out you know we're going to be looking further into this but um, right now the the places that fluoridate really around the world are those that have a strong dental lobby. And that tends to be U.K. and U.S.-influenced countries. Um, you know, China won't fluoridate. They know better. Um, they've got some, and India won't fluoridate. They know better because they've got areas with some high naturally occurring fluoride in their wells. And so the people have paid the price for that. So the only issue is if, see, some of the areas that in China, we, they would say, oh, they're so high, the levels in their fluoride in their wells. But actually, if you start looking into it a little bit closer, you find out that, some of the areas are not very much higher um, than some of our areas in the United States, especially when you consider the multiple sources of, of fluoride that we get that augment what we get in our water. So um, this is, uh, you know, when you see how the rest of the world has looked at this and, and dealt with it a lot more honestly than we have, 
Uh, so you can tell that at some point here, as information is spreading, as the fluoride gate scandal unfolds, um, we're finding that people are um, they're getting really angry. I mean, I get phone calls from people who are white with anger that their baby has, or, or their, for instance, a woman called me up and her two, da- two daughters had uh, thyroid disease at a very young age, and she was trying to find out about this, and, and then suddenly she found out about fluorides, and, and she realized that the fluorides, um, they may not have caused it entirely, but they certainly didn't help it. They may have exacerbated it. And, um, you know, I get people from a, a broad spectrum of groups who are calling now, and that's actually, you know, your listeners who are uh, listening to this, it takes the people who've been personally impacted by it to really have kind of a, a righteous pulpit, so to speak, to be able to speak to water utilities and to talk to lawyers and things like that. And so we encourage that. Well, there have been areas where, uh, you know, they've stopped it. There's been progress because of, you know, movements like yours where people are realizing it and, uh, you know, towns or something have actually quit using it. Oh, very much so. Um, and, you know, there's a couple of different ways that fluoridation, water fluoridation gets rejected. One is as communities that have been doing it for a period of time and then they just vote to get rid of it, stop doing it. And then there's those that have the opportunity to start it up and the town gets educated about it and say, no way do we want this. Um, and in recently, for instance, uh, Wichita, Kansas, they there was these groups that were trying to, this was one of the largest areas in the United States that still had been unfluoridated, and they kind of got snuck up on by the pro-fluoride people, and suddenly this thing was thrust upon, there was going to be a, refer- a vote on Election Day uh, this in November here. And... Um, so they, they mobilized, and it was a group of people that just were very well-meaning. Uh, they educated themselves, and they didn't have a lot of time by the time this thing got introduced, and the other side had already kind of, uh, if you will, quote-unquote, poisoned the minds of the leaders with this and tried to make them feel that boys were good and safe and needed. And um, then, but the, uh, the final vote, I believe, was uh, pretty substantially against it, and they were vastly outspent by the pro-fluoridation side. I mean, humongously outspent. And they still wound up 60-40 rejecting it. And uh, so Wichita and the surrounding areas won't have to deal with that right now. But the thing that is, I suppose, in, in Portland, there's a similar situation where um, the leaders of the city up there got snookered into believing this thing. And suddenly the other side had just, I think, about 30 days to collect signatures to make a referendum to overturn the city leader's actions, and they did. I think they needed something like, I don't know, 19 or 20,000 signatures. They got 40,000 plus, um, and maybe they needed 23,000. Anyway, they way surpassed it, but they did it all in less than a month. Wow. And, and um, so there's some really exciting things. And so now that, that Portland thing, there's going to be a referendum on overturning the city leaders' actions. I think it's in 2013 or 2014. But in the meantime, it has stalled the startup of fluoridation. What's the but, actual you know, purpose? Like you were just saying there that they're coming in, the, the pro-fluoride people are coming in and they want to make it so you have fluoride in your water. Why do they want to do that? Is it a financial gain thing? or I mean, what, what is their reasoning for coming in and saying, we want to give you fluoride all of a sudden? Well, you know... Um, the the dentists like to say that, you know, we're losing money by fluoridating. All these cavities will be prevented, and, and uh, you know, they, they act like, you know, it's a very sort of noble, uh, philanthropic thing that they do um, for society. But when it comes right down to it, most people don't know, for instance, that the fastest growing area of dentistry is cosmetic dentistry. 
and this speaks to the issue of uh, dental fluorosis, which I think we talked about before. Right. Over the radio, it's hard without seeing photos of dental fluorosis to talk about it, but many people may know that there are, may themselves or their family members have these kind of white or yellow or brown spots on their, typically their top, front, middle teeth, but it can be sort of the, the, the chewing edges of your middle teeth on the top and the bottom very commonly. And, you know, they come from by the time you're, say, I don't know, 8 or 10 years old, and then they last for the rest of your life. Um, that dental, what they call dental fluorosis, these spots on their teeth are a, a, a visible sort of outer biomarker of an inner fluoride overdose. The, the issue is, is, and we talked about this before, is that 40%, 41% or so of adolescents 12 to 15 now have some form of this on their teeth. And, you know, the disturbing part, of course, is, is that since this is the hardest surface in your body, your tooth, what do we think this fluoride that they cause this to the hardest surfaces? Well, what are the impacts on your soft tissues, your brain and kidneys, thyroid, things like this? Uh, but dentists, of course, are making money on this uh, business of fixing these stains on people. But you ask yeah, a really good question. Why are they doing this? But I think realistically, and I, I don't have anything as a whole against dentists because I think dentists have a tough job. I think they're, they really care. Um, they, they're providing a service. That, how would you like to be in a job where people really try to stay away from your service because they have all these painful associations <laughs> with it? Exactly. My, my, my wife worked in dentistry for 13 years, and she knew nothing. She was told nothing about harm from fluoride. So, and I found that most dentists basically know just the talking points that are given from the dental trade associations. And so, you know, um, for instance, you're in Chicago, and uh, Chicago is a home of the American Dental Association. There, I think that um, people need to really uh, ask the ADA to get specific on certain questions, you know, to answer some certain things that, because, you know, there's some questions about harm from fluoride that there's just no good answer to it, if you, if you answer truthfully. And um, so this issue about why do they fluoridate, I think most dentists, in good conscience, just trying to help people, they really believe fluoride is um, preventing cavities. The right. issue is they only prevent a small amount of cavities, and the, and the way they do is through topical action primarily, meaning when it touches the teeth in your mouth, not when you swallow it, because that's how they, 50, 60 years ago, when they started it up, they said, you know, you got to swallow this stuff and it'll be incorporated into your tooth as it's forming under the gums um, and be cavity resistant. Now we found out around the year 99, 2000, guess what? The primary action is when it touches your teeth topically. So that voided the whole concept of putting it in drinking water. And so it should have ended it, but you, you'd ask yourself, why not? And that's the interesting part, one of the parts of the fluoride gate scandal. Hmm. They say it's probably uh, financial is a big part of it, plus kind of the embarrassment or the the fact that it's been going on for so many years and they've known that it's been bad and no one's ever done a thing about it. Government-wise is what I mean, not people like you. Well, and that's the issue is that um, there's a, a famous saying, uh, uh, Upton, Upton Sinclair. Um, he, he said, don't, I'm going to miss it by a couple words here, but he said, it's very difficult to get a person to believe something, to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, this is a, 
thing to where I think they're, what you mentioned about embarrassment and the legal liability issue, I mean, I think this is why people have a hard time being objective about it because people have promoted it. They're afraid of being sued. And, hey, the, the, the lawsuits, legal action things are starting now. And it's starting with dental fluorosis. And my venture to say is that it's going to move into uh, from dental fluorosis into the kidney harm angle and then into the thyroid issue, maybe the bone harm issue also. Uh, but there's just so many... I, and I talk to more and more attorneys these days. There's a phrase, I'm not an attorney, but they use this phrase, they call it a cause of action. Um, basically, it's sort of the rationale for the, the meat and guts of why you would sue somebody, and um, they call it a cause of action. And there's a whole series of causes of action relating to harm from fluoride. So as a risk management issue uh, for a water utility, in Illinois, where, where you are, for instance, you have statewide mandated fluoridation. Um, uh, that doesn't mean, though, from what I understand, just because you're required to fluoridate doesn't relieve you of your responsibility of informing people about all the parameters, maybe potential effects of what may happen. So, you know, it's a it's an interesting story uh, as it unfolds, and um, I think that most dentists in good conscience were really just trying to help, but now they're in a pickle. And the question is, is the Dental Association going to defend them later if they're sued by their own patients. And I would rather suspect they won't. Yeah, well, I remember growing up when I, I grew up in Orland Park, a suburb of the Chicago area, and I remember we had fluoride in our water, you know, a long time ago, and it was, everyone said that this stuff's amazing, it's going to keep you from getting uh, tooth decay, and, you know, it's like this miracle substance. And I grew up that way, so the, our generation kind of grew up that way, too. So that's probably part of it, too, because we've kind of been brainwashed since we were kids. Well, yes. I mean, we all, me included, we all thought that this was the, the panacea. Like I say, it was all American and mom's apple pie fluoride, you know. And uh, the thing is, is that, I, and this is a really important distinction to make, lack of fluoride does not cause cavities. Too many sugars on your teeth and lack of oral hygiene and dental care, that causes cavities. Right. So, um, you know, there's no real biologic need for anything other than microscopic trace amounts of fluoride in our body. There's really no need for it, and you're not going to, uh, you know, there, there's just a lot of mis, mis, uh, half-truths or uh, outright falsehoods that are being spread about this, this um, chemical. And, and the thing that I, I find so fascinating as I watch this whole thing unfold is the first people that have figured this out are the private sector providers of fluoride. I think those, because they know that they don't have what they call sovereign immunity or, or immunity as a government agency from being sued. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the ones who, I, because they've already looked at the science and they're already starting to move away from fluoride. And to me, that ought to be very telling for all the legislators there in Chicago. I mean, if you've got groups like, um, I mean, I think it's super, for instance, that now Gerber is selling an unfluoridated uh, bottled water so that parents won't use fluoridated city water to make baby formula. I was just going to say right. that, too, because that, that's a statement right there. I mean, that, that hits you hard if you think about it. Oh, it, it, it's a very telling statement. And there's some. we just got some other news today on how other people are starting to back away from um, uh, selling fluoride in their products. And, and this, um, you know, you ask yourself, why did the National Kidney Foundation uh, withdraw their endorsement of water fluoridation, albeit quietly. Why did they do that? And 
um, why are why are there these unfluoridated toothpastes proliferating now? Um, so the private sector folks, who I think have more immediate sort of immediately discernible legal exposure, and I'm not a lawyer, I don't I don't pretend to be, I, I but I do talk with a, a growing number of law firms. Absolutely fascinating now as as they look at this and they say, wait a minute, there's there's a lot of science here. There really is um, harm that's happened here, and how come people didn't um, the fluoride providers have not told the susceptible groups at a minimum, let alone the general population, why didn't they tell the susceptible groups like diabetics and kidney patients about harm from fluoride? Has there been any big uh, fluoride lawsuit yet or, you know, any actually, but I mean, they don't have to be large, but I mean, is, is a class action suits or anything like that starting? Well, the first one uh, was filed, then withdrawn, and then refiled uh, due, due to a technicality, but now it's been refiled. I think it was in September here. Um, it was in the federal district court in Maryland on behalf of a young girl that has dental fluorosis. I think she has something like 10 to 12 teeth in her mouth that are going to need an awful lot of care. Um, if she gets veneers on her teeth, um, and those don't last forever, I think they last maybe 10 to 15 years, looks like you know maybe her lifetime estimate of, of cost to keep her, to fix her teeth might be in the range of $100,000. Um, this is like a 14-year-old girl. And... Um, so there's a lawsuit been brought against Nestle Gerber and Dannon. Um, and uh, Dannon used to sell this little water that on the front of it, a little bottle of water, that said something to the effect of, for your children's uh, dental health. Mm-hmm. And it was had, had fluoride to it. And um, so, of course, now that she has this, and her parents thought they were doing the right thing, you know, giving her this water for her, their daughter's health. And so that has been filed in federal district court in Maryland. So... Um, that ought to make everybody sit up because there's so much science and literature behind this. There's no question that her, her stains were caused by fluoride. There's no question about that. So uh, everyone's thinking to themselves, wow, uh, what's the ramification of this? Um, and, and to me, I think that um, people who are listening to this program, if, you, if you're concerned about uh, your, your or your children's um, how, or maybe you have those stains on the teeth and don't know where they came from or don't want to have to pay to get them fixed. Um, I'm just encouraging people to find out, you know, what the legal options are. I, I, I'm not a big person who believes in an awful lot of lawsuits because, uh, you know, we don't want to have a whole boatload of lawsuits that are just not necessary. On the other hand, it's going to probably take, uh, there's going to be quite a bit of lawsuits related to this in order to collapse it and to expose it, and then to get the help for the people that need it. And I'm, I'm, I understand that. I completely understand that. So um, I have a, a growing list of law firms now that are following this and they're, are diving into it, actually. They're um, looking for patients. Um, so if there's anyone that's listening to this who is a kidney patient, for instance, and maybe you've been a long-term kidney patient, and nobody bothered to share with you that kidney patients are a susceptible subgroup, uh, you know, give me an email, send me a call. I can, um, you know, give you a little bit more information and maybe you do want to pursue uh, legal action and, uh, it, you know, to get some help. Do you want to describe again? I know you did last time you were on the show, but for people that don't know, describe what your teeth look like when they get this. So, you know, they know if perhaps they are getting it. Well, um, sure. The, um, and I, I'm not a dentist. I'm not allowed to diagnose dental fluorosis, so, and I wouldn't want to, but I am working with some 
dentist who, if people would like to send me a photo of their or their child's teeth, or send a couple photos, I'd be glad to run them past a dentist. Um, but the dental fluorosis starts off typically as white kind of opacities, kind of chalky-looking uh, white spots on those top front middle teeth or maybe anywhere along the cutting or biting edges of the top or bottom front teeth. And um, you could have anywhere from uh, one to two to six of them affected on the top and similarly on the bottom. So then uh, what you've got is, is these kind of, they're obvious, you can see them, and then um, they're, they're white and they they don't reflect the light the same. Uh, sometimes they kind of look like sort of chalky, but some are not quite as chalky. Um, the weird thing is, is that depending on what your diet is, um, that these spots on their teeth have actually, the architecture of the tooth has been changed. So they tend to absorb uh, staining based on what your diet is. Uh-huh. So if you drink a lot of tea or other things like this, I guess what I'm trying to say is they only get darker over time. Uh, they never get whiter, they get darker. So some people may have started off with white spots and then they gradually got, they turned into brown spots. And some people in the really severe cases have actual pits, like golf divots in their teeth, like actual little holes in their teeth. Um, And they're really severe if they were exposed to a lot of fluoride. Um, So if anyone does have that, we uh, at the Lilly Center, we're looking to find people like that. We photograph uh, folks and we talk to them. We're we're doing some research uh, related to that. So if anyone has that in their children's teeth, you know, and, and disturbingly in the black community uh, and the Hispanic community, there's even disproportionately more of this dental fluorosis. So um, this is one of the things that we broke the story on nationally that um, we felt that the Centers for Disease Control and others should have shared the fact that it's been known that minority populations have disproportionately more harm from fluoride. Um, but even if you're in, in, a, in the Caucasian community, um, if you're a kidney patient or a diabetic, if you're someone who has a thyroid concern, uh, you know, all the or if you have those stains, uh, we'd like to talk to you. That'd be wonderful. That's interesting. And then you say like the, like the probably the lower income areas where the people can't afford these water filters and all this stuff. These are the people that are getting hit by this the hardest right now because even if they they're aware of it, they have no way to stop it, right? That, to me, is very compelling. Um, Andrew Young, a former U.N. ambassador, you know, he talked about that when he came, issued a statement. He sent a letter to the Georgia legislature telling him he, can no longer, he does not support water fluoridation. And he was concerned about folks from low-income families. And, and he says, what? He says, their babies don't count? Of course they do. He said, this is an issue of fairness and compassion and civil rights. So uh, I think that's really one of the very disturbing aspects about this is that a lot of people don't have the information that they should have, and those that do have the information may not be able to afford to avoid it. They go right to the sink to make their uh, baby formula, um, and they use city water. Or, you know, when you're making your spaghetti uh, and you're boiling your pasta, you, people don't know generally that as you boil your water and it boils off, the fluoride concentrates in the remaining water in your pot. Wow. Uh, it's, not like, it's not like chlorine that boils off in, you know, in you have less of it, and actually as your water level drops, the fluoride level increases um, when you're boiling water. And so there's this, and you're right, in terms of buying a filtration system, if you are barely able to put food on your table, where are you going to get the money for these sometimes pretty expensive uh, systems that will take out fluoride? 
So, you know, I, I think that there's a real issue of fairness here. And if I was a kidney patient, and, you know, there's several kinds of kidney patients, you know, someone who has a kidney stone uh, or a kidney transplant or chronic kidney disease or maybe on dialysis, you know, they, they filter out the fluoride at the dialysis center along with other things in the water. But then you go home and you ingest the fluoride from all these other sources. Um, you can die from fluoride poisoning on a dialysis machine. They don't take the fluoride um, out of the water. And, you know, this has happened, unfortunately, when the filtration systems have broken down. Unfortunately, that's a really, really rare occurrence. But, um, you know, this issue, for instance, uh, a lot of men, or, and, and women too, but uh, let's say you have kidney stones. What is the first thing they tell you to do to prevent kidney stones? Drink a lot of water. Correct. Well, if the fluoride, if the water you're drinking happens to be fluoridated, then the very water that you're drinking to prevent the stones can damage the tissue and your kidneys around the stones. So how much sense does that make? And um, this is why I think kidney patients really should speak out. And uh, if they need legal representation, seek it out and, um, and look into this because uh, this is, um, you know, kidney disease is really a concerning issue because there's a lot of times there's this virtually, in most cases, there's no warning signals. You're heading towards kidney disease. Wow. And um, so this is just important that people who are diabetics, for instance, find this out too. You know, and that's because that. I was going to say, a thought ahead. just came to me, Daniel, and... Uh... You know, people are trying to be eat healthier nowadays, not everybody, but a lot of people, you know, they're into the health stuff. And uh, so say they're doing their own organic garden in the backyard, their own vegetables, and they think they're doing great. But they live in the suburbs and they're watering this with fluoridated water. In fact, their vegetables have fluoride in them then, don't they? Well, the uptake of fluoride, honestly, that's an area I haven't spent a lot of time on. I focus more on the personal health injection okay. angle. But um, I know that some plants, like for instance tea, tea plants naturally accumulate fluoride from the soil. Um, and, uh, I, you know, you can't tell me that if you're using fluoridated water to water your garden that you're lowering the amount of fluoride in your plants that you're going to, your vegetables that you're going to be eating. Right. Uh, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of, and, you know, of course, there's the environmental side of this thing that only 1% or less of all the water that's fluoridated goes into people's bodies to theoretically prevent cavities. The rest of it goes out onto our lawn, uh, goes down the drain, through our laundry, through our shower drains, all that kind of thing. So on a, on a basis of this is like the ultimate uh, way to dispose of a waste product because that's what the fluoride that we use is. It's a collected air pollutant emission um, that we use. But um, they collect this stuff, and essentially they dilute it through the public water supply, and then it goes out through everybody's drains. And so they're basically spreading a collected air pollution emission uh, all over the world through our drains and, of course, into our bodies. So, you know, when, when I worked in, I used to work with hazardous waste, uh, very hands-on, and we always said the solution to pollution is dilution. And we kind of said that sort of tongue-in-cheek. But that's really what's happening here is a very dangerous chemical is being... Uh, diluted into the public water supply in our bodies and then just sent out into the environment, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, why don't you hit on that again real quick? Because if I remember right from the last time, you said fluoride is from a byproduct from the scrubbers and the smokestacks or something. Wasn't that it? Yes. Um, the the way this thing unfolded, when we started the fluoridate, they began to use fluorides. Uh, they were talking a lot about sodium fluoride. Uh, but the practical aspect of it is, as it has unfolded, 
Um, now, back in like in the 70s and 80s, we began to um, where when you manufacture certain kinds of phosphate fertilizers, they scrape this phosphorus ore out of the ground, and it comes contaminated with, with a number of things. Uh, one of which is fluoride, um, also certain radioactive um, things and, and uh, arsenic and other things. But um, they decided that because it was going out through the smokestacks of these fertilizer factories and landing on the cows and crops all around, creating real problems, they put these scrubbers on the smokestacks. And so they would basically, it's a scrubber is a way they use a water stream uh, to basically collect the emissions and, and they create this thing called a liquor. And it's got a sizable amount of fluoride in it. And so uh, they would collect this stuff. It's called hydrofluorosilicic acid or um, there's some other names for it. But um, then that's what was used, and the theory was, well, it'll be a win-win. We won't pollute the environment. We'll collect it. We'll drip it into the public water supply, and then uh, people won't have as many cavities. But, of course, they didn't bother to tell people that this stuff is um, uh, pretty nasty. It's an industrial grade. They call it a, a – they want to call it something other than what it is. So I think they call it a co-product, a fertilizer um, production. Um, let's just call it what it was until they put the scrubber on it. Uh, it was an air pollutant emission, right. but in in legal terms, if you can, if it has an economic value, it's no longer considered a waste. So um, they collect this chemical and um, they use it, and it's you can't put it, you can't dump it in international waters, can't put it in a lake, uh, things like that. But and if you spill it, it's a hazardous material. You have to transport it with all these placards all over the truck, but you can drip it into the public water supply, and suddenly it's um, a really great treatment. Um, something good and safe. And, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me. Now what has happened is much of that product is coming in from Mexico and China. Uh, some of our capacity for producing in the U.S. has shifted. So we're getting a lot more of it from China and uh, Mexico, and you can kind of draw your own conclusions about the safety and purity of all this stuff. Um, so it's, it's very sobering. It's not pharmaceutical-grade fluoride. It's not even reagent-grade fluoride like you use in a laboratory. This is industrial grade, meaning it's dirty and contaminated with all kinds of really bad actors. Well, basically, when this is being dumped into your village water supply, it should be in a truck with a huge skull and crossbones on the side. Well, it is dangerous, and I've worked with you know some pretty dangerous fluoride compounds, other ones, and you know, this is to me. There's so many things we we could talk on on this whole issue. There's a lot that could be said, but I mean, there's. From the standpoint of the uh, person listening to this, and you ask yourself, well, what do I do? How do we stop this? See, my perspective on this is, um, I like, for instance, Wichita. Two times previously, at least two times, the pro-fluoride people tried to introduce fluoridation, and it was rejected. And what did they do? They came back again, and they tried to do it. Now, this happens. I get calls from people that they say, will you come talk to our city council? Will you come help us? We want to end fluoridation. And um, sometimes what will happen is, is uh, an area will vote out fluoridation, but three years later a new group of city council members come in and vote it back in. So our, our idea that we've worked at on the Lilly, at the Lilly Center is that we want to kill this thing to sort of take the axe to the root of the tree, figuratively speaking, and that's the Centers for Disease Control, the world's foremost promoter of fluoridation. So we're working now... Um, through several different uh, methods to expose this, to expose the Centers for Disease Control, and to bring into focus the fluoride gate scandal. And there's a real le legacy opportunity here. Um, 
you know, when fluoridation ends, it's going to pay dividends for generations in people's health. And the other side says, oh, the cavities, the babies, the children, you know, all these terrible things will happen to their mouth. Well, we, yeah, we need to deal with the causes, the true causes, which is lack of access to dentists. Some of the dentists won't even take Medicaid, and, and, and people don't have access to dentists any, uh, in so many places. And interestingly, the dentists don't want to allow, the dental association is not enthused with something called dental therapists, which is a new kind of classification that's been tried in a couple of states where some folks like work in school, they're not really dentists, but they have been given enough training to where they can maybe fill some cavities and do cleanings and things like this. Right. Very much, very much cheaper. But the ADA has found a reason that they want to object to this. And you can, you know, like I said before, you draw your own conclusions as to what they're trying to protect into doing that. But um, there is an opportunity here. That's why whenever I talk to folks uh, in the media or people who call us up, I, I always say, you know, who do you know? Um, who is it that you know that might be a person of means or a person who's well-connected, a lawyer or a, um, a philanthropist or someone who can get behind this? The pro-fluoride side has now gotten the Pew Charitable Trust to fund their efforts to spread fluoride. They got deep pockets, and they, I th- my opinion is they snookered the Pew folks into believing that this is, uh, you know, the thing to do to help people. But uh, we're looking to find people who want to get involved, who are um, financially able to support it, or who have connections to uh, well-connected people themselves, you know, celebrities and, and uh, key scientists and influential people. Right. So uh, if but who's listening to this uh, is such a person or knows such a person, uh, sort of take an inventory of who I know that might be able to get involved in this. Because um, the other side is outspending all of the really cool people. Like, uh, you know, there's some great groups like the Fluoride Action Network and other groups that are working uh, to end fluoridation. But we're being outspent by orders of magnitude, huge amounts. And, you know, we have a nonprofit now, and we're looking to be funded, uh, you know, we look for gifts. But the the issue is is that if we don't sort of plan our work and work our plan, the other side is going to keep pushing fluoride like they just tried to do in Portland and Wichita. So, um, you know, that's why I so appreciate you giving us the opportunity to talk today. Well, what can, the you know, the average listener out there do? Someone that doesn't know anyone famous and might not have any money, but, I mean, what can they do to help you? Well, um, the, if you have dental fluorosis, or you think you do, you may not know, but if you have these funny spots in your teeth, they've been there since childhood, um, give me an email, and um, we can talk about it, or give me a phone call. And um, uh, if, you, if you are a kidney patient, or if you're a diabetic, you know, diabetics very often are really thirsty. So what do they do? They drink more fluoridated water. So that's why the National Research Council designated diabetics as a susceptible subgroup that's particularly vulnerable to harm. And um, if you're someone who has um, uh, dental fluorosis, kidney disease, if you're a diabetic, maybe if you have thyroid concerns, um, give us a call or email us or, you know, start talking to your water utility specifically about this and educate yourself. That's really the most important thing to do is to say things to your water utilities in a language that's meaningful and non-threatening to the water utility. Because most water utilities, they just want to do the right thing. You know, they're just trying to give you good water. But like every, like a lot of folks, they got snookered into uh, believing in water fluoridation. And um, if you know uh, anyone, if you want to talk to, people want to talk to their legislators, 
and um, given information. We had written a couple of articles on the fluoride gate scandal that are on our website. Uh, it, they're called the questions of fluoride gate, and they sort of there's two of them. I'm working on a third one. That if people would like to read those and then forward them around uh, to key influential people or their water utility. Um, you know, or the legislators, I think that would be great. Why don't you give out all your information to your contact, you know, whatever you want to do, your website and everything like that, so people can get in contact with you here? Sure, sure. Uh, our website is www.powerandhealth.org. That's P-O-W-E-R-A-N-D-H-E-A-L-T-H, just like it sounds, powerandhealth.org. And there's a, a link there you can click on to see some of our information on the fluoride gate scandal. Um, and you can donate there and things like that. Um, the the articles that I just mentioned are there on our fluoride gate page, and uh, people can forward those around to attorneys and whoever else. Uh, our my email address you can contact us through the website, but I'm going to also give you uh, another email address which um, work, works sometimes easier for me. It's stocking2 at yahoo.com. That's my last name, stocking. S T O C-K-I-N, and then the numeral 2, S-T-O-C-K-I-N-2, stocking2 at yahoo.com. And um, uh, my phone number's on the website there. Uh, If someone would like to give us a call, it's 706-669-0786, Okay, well, that was great, Daniel. We're uh, running low on time here. Is there anything else you wanted to say in closing, or are we all set here? Well, I guess I would just say that um, it's right now I'm a big believer in windows of opportunity. There's a window of opportunity now with all these other people that are bailing on fluoridation and certain great legal developments and other things to where the house of cards that is water fluoridation is wobbling. And um, we can, through folks who will take some action steps right now, uh, they can help protect themselves, their loved ones, and have a benefit, a legacy for a long period of time. So a lot of people, I think they vent. They write a letter to the editor, and that's about all they do. But really what we need is harmed individuals, kidney patients, diabetics, people with dental fluorosis. We need connections to uh, lawyers and and doctors that get it and politicians that get it and celebrities uh, that might be able to help endorse. So, uh, And we need charitable contributions. So uh, there's just a series of things that people can do. Um, I think now they're going to have really a lasting, lasting uh, benefit. And they can uh, donate on your, you're, you're now a nonprofit. I know last time you said you weren't. So they can go to your website and donate, even if they only have a couple dollars or whatever they can afford. They can help absolutely. you out now. Yes, absolutely. You know, we just, um, I, I haven't had a salary myself uh, since eight and a half years. And, uh, you know, occasionally we've had people send us a little bit of money and we've been super appreciative, super appreciative. But now we have, a 501c3 organization where people can get a tax deduction for whatever amount they can donate, and, and we would so very much appreciate that. That's great. Okay, Daniel, it was nice talking with you again, and uh, as always, our door is open. Anything comes up or any new information, you're always welcome back. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me here. Okay, thank you. All right, we'll be back next Sunday with a brand new show right here on ufo-info.com. See you then.